0: The world around us, screams for our attention. What's right? What's wrong? Who has the answers? Who should I believe? Come plug into a new reality.
1: Good, everyone. Good to see you. Hi. Um, before, we get into, before we get into this tonight, I was, um, I don't know about you, but I was just incredibly struck by the presence of God here tonight. Um, as the team led worship and as we prayed, I really sensed that, yeah, for a lot of us this week has been difficult, and this next week probably will be quite difficult as well. And uh, just really sensing God's spirit here, wanting to encourage us, wanting to meet us and remind us that uh, Jesus' burden is easy and his yoke is light, and that any who come to him will find rest in his arms. Um, yeah, just wanted to say that before we get into it. Let's, let's pray as we move on to the next uh, phase of our series. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, that you, you're not this strong taskmaster. Um, you're not this distant, uncaring deity. Um, you're not this vengeful person but you are love, personified, and you love each and every one of us. As we look at your words tonight, as we gather together around your scriptures, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to us, that we might know you more fully and experience the wonderful, glorious freedom that comes from knowing and following you. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. Uh, Yeah, we're going through a series called Spiritual Reality. We're we're kind of comparing and contrasting. You know, you get all these different messages from the world and be like this, eat like this, dress like this, talk like this, do like this. And it's really hard to know how to mold yourself and fit yourself and how how do you work and respond to all these different voices and where does God's voice fit into that. And so tonight, we're looking specifically at... Let's see if this works... Nope. That's all right. Yep, I think so. Try this again. Oh, hey, it worked. Whoever's up there, you're the man or the woman, not sexist. Uh, Tonight, we are talking about hashtag squad goals. Now, for some of you I recognize, uh, some of us will know what uh, hashtag squad goals is all about. Um, Some of us here, oh. There we go, thank you, my friend. Uh, Some of us here might not fully recognize what squad goals is, so let me explain it a little bit. Um, Most of you probably know the pop star Taylor Swift, yeah? Yeah, well, Taylor Swift has got this crew of girls that she does things with, and she calls them her squad. It's the Taylor Swift girl squad. And so often, when she'd do things, you'd get all the squad together, and they would post a photo, and it'd be like, hashtag squad goals. So like, I wanna be like Taylor Swift and her cool, cool friends, and like hang out all the time. And it became this funny internet thing where if you did something cool, like if you were at the gym and you'd done an amazing workout, you could like post a picture with your friend and be like, hashtag squad goals, because you all need to be fit as cool as I am. And then eventually, like the internet does to everything, it became a joke until you'd post a picture of SpongeBob and Patrick eating hamburgers and then be like, hashtag squad goals. Um, But what, what the whole idea behind this essentially is, is this goal, this thing that we're trying to attain and want to be at. And so we're going to look and discover this because I find this message comes at us so many times from so many directions of this is the goal. This is what we need to look like. This is what we need to be like. And I want us to dig into that a little bit and understand how society kind of views that and how Jesus might look at it slightly differently. And now the best way, I think, to discern how does the world define success? How does the world kind of shape its goal, its utter best thing that you can look at? Well, the best way to find that out is by looking at TV ads. And so we're going to look at a few of these tonight. And the best TV ads are usually the Lotto ads. So uh, let's take a look at this one real quick.
0: I thought that love was just a word they sang about in songs
1: <laughs>
0: It took you kisses to reveal that I was wrong and love is real.
1: yeah it's a a good ad you notice some of the things though can you notice some of the things that Lotto's talking about the good life. Now, again, if we could ignore the mild sexism that obviously any girl who sees him is probably going to think he's attractive, but um, if we look beyond that, there's some things that you're beginning to see that, so this man before, you know, he's probably sad and he had all these unfulfilled dreams, you know, he's probably tied down with a job, he's probably tied into a mortgage and was living quite a bland life and had this dream of reconnecting and having that perfect relationship. And then he wins Lotto, and all of his dreams are able to come through. He's able to move forward, be successful, and find that relationship that he's always wanted. And when it turns out that the actual real-life relationship that was in front of him wasn't quite as glamorous, that's okay, because he's got the cash and can just head off to the next woman. You see this this goal that they're trying to portray? When you've got Lotto, when you've got millions and millions of dollars, you can find whatever relationship and whatever fulfillment you're looking for. Let's uh, let's take a look at another one. Beep, beep,
0: beep, 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 beep. Don't stop me now. Don't stop me. Cause I'm having a good time, having a good time. I'm shooting star leaping through the sky.
1: on Thursday. Look at that. Good old lotto ads. Do you notice this one's even more explicit than the other one? It literally lays out his two lives, what happened on Wednesday and what happened on Thursday. You notice Wednesday's bland, boring, literally the color saturation that they filmed it in is on this like beige grayscale so that even colors look dull and boring. And then once he's won lotto, He can do anything he wants. You notice he spends the entire day in his bathrobe, but is still the man doing everything. Well, in the old day, he's trying to do, he's living with people. He doesn't really like living with them. He's trying to eat breakfast. There's no milk left. Well, in the other one, he's surrounded by friends and people who can help him and people who can make him laugh. And what essentially these lotto ads are doing is it's presenting basically the gospel of lotto. And if you notice, there's real similarities. If you've been in church a while, you hear people share their testimony of like, well, I was like this, and then, and then I met Jesus, and now my life is like this. These lotto ads are basically the same thing. Well, my life was like this. On Wednesday, I was a no one. I was poor. <sighs> Heaven forbid. I had no friends. I was stuck in a job, and life was meaningless. And then I won lotto, and now I'm the man who can sit in my bathrobe and water ski on top of a pyramid. They don't address how you gain the physical capabilities to be able to do that, um, but I guess when you own 16 or 20 million dollars, you can do whatever you want. But what these things are so interesting about is it portrays this goal of what would be good, what would be perfect, what would be successful, what we should all attain for. This is the good life. This is the squad goals that we're all looking to fulfill. And the thing is, if we're not careful, this kind of image, this rampant expectation of this is what we need to be like will often bleed into our consciousness. And even though we know, and I say it explicitly and everyone's like, yeah, you know, everyone says that's the truth, but uh, I don't really believe it. But I, I think if we're not careful, these ideas subconsciously begin to seep in. And it's true, if you had money, things, a lot of things would be easier. But the most dangerous thing is that with all of this, Is that our dreams for the future, our squad goals, the things we hope for, influence our present behavior, and they influence how we act now. And so if we buy wholesale this message that success and happiness and the good life looks like wealth, freedom from relationships, and the ability to do whatever we want to, whenever we want to, with whomever we want to, is this perfectly autonomous individual in control of everything. If we buy that and we think that's what we need to head for, then it affects how we act and interact with people now. And now this isn't a new thing, this was incredibly common and it happened, um, happened in the Bible. And so we're gonna look at a passage in James where James is addressing a group of Christians who are going through a really, really similar thing. He writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting Wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, "Uh, You stand there or here, sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. He goes on to say, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. See, James is dealing with this issue where I think the wider view of the world had started to bleed into the church. Now, a little bit of background that I think that'll help make this passage a little bit more clear is a little bit of an understanding of Rome and what they would call patron-client relationships. Now, I've mentioned a few weeks ago that in Bible times in Rome, uh, there was massive, incredible like, wealth inequality, like the income gap was staggering. So, yeah, you had roughly 8% who were outstandingly, staggeringly wealthy. They were pretty much all the landowners everywhere and they, most of them happened to be in the Senate of Rome and they got to make all the political rules, they got to govern, they got to set up systems so that they kept on getting richer and the poor just worked on their fields and made them money and then they would just hand out enough food for the poor to survive. And then about 90% of the country was basically in that poor subsistence day-to-day living. And then in between you had this margin of about 2% of the population who's kind of like a slightly middle class, and they're kind of like wealthy, and they were trying to move on the up and up. And you had this weird divide where this 2% was actually could be, they could be merchants or traders, but they actually had quite a bit of wealth. Um, But the difficulty was, in Rome, money wasn't what defined your success. Instead, in Rome, honor was the main currency. And so what developed was the system of patron-client relationships, because you had the old money, who were the 8%, you know, they owned land for generations upon generations upon generations. And they had all this honor and this esteem, and they usually were the ones who would, in a city, they'd pay for the big fountain, and they'd pay for the temple, and they would host the big feasts. And at all of these feasts, they would say, praise Senator Gracchus for building our fountain, and praise Senator this person. It became all about honor. And so this 2% who's wanting to move up in society, even though they've got wealth, they don't have honor, so, the, what they seek to do is they seek to find smaller establishments, and they would become what's called a patron, which is they'd pay for them and supply all their needs. So, you know, you'd have like uh, leather workers, or sewers, or tanners, and they would basically become the patron for this small group of people. And how it would work is the tanners would get money from the merchants, their patron, and uh, the client, which would be the tanners' group, would essentially, at every turn that they could, they would shout the honor of their patron. You know, so at the tanning, uh, at their workshop, they'd have a big plaque praising the honor of this wealthy businessman. And then whenever there was a feast as a client, it was your duty to get up and be like, hey, how amazing is this guy who's put on this feast for us? And so this merchant, this 2%, would suddenly feel like, and they'd begin to move up a little bit in the social structure. And Rome was filled with this. These patron-client relationships were everywhere. So when you get to the church... This small Christian group was essentially just another tannery. They were another business. And so a patron who's trying to establish honor could look at the church and say, ooh, I'll just be a patron for you guys, and then you can shout my honor. And this is what James is talking about. These patrons would come to these Christian church services in the ecclesia where they were, and what the patrons would do is they would tithe and give generously. And then you can see the church fall right into this patron-client relationship. When this patron would come in, they'd say, oh, sir, sir, come here, have this best seat, have this amazing seat. And as we begin our service, we'll be like, hey, and we, you know, they'll do it in a really nice Christian way, but we thank God so much for this person who's able to pay for these things and, and cover these things. And they fell into this system that Rome was doing. And because they gave so much honor and focused on the patron, it meant that if a poor person came in or a slave came in, They didn't want to dishonor their wealthy, you know, leader. And so what instead they do is they say, oh, can you just, can you sit at the back or just stand? There's some standing room for you. And, you know, when we have communion, you can have some, but have some last. Let's make sure our patron can go first and get all that he wants. And then you can come behind and see see what's left. And essentially what it was is this church had bought in to the good life that Rome was portraying. The lotto ads for Rome would have said if you had enough honor, you would be king. If your name was praised and if your name was written in the history books for generations to generations, then your life will be complete. And the church just walked right wholesale into that system and said, yep, cool, patron, we'll give you what you want, we'll give you what you need. And then it suddenly upset the culture that the church was in. And now it's easy for us to say, oh, well, church, you shouldn't have done that. But the truth is, I wonder if we're actually any better. Um, I had a friend who was working for a, big church, a bigger church here in New Zealand, and what had happened was this, this church was putting on a big conference, and so they managed to fly over this really cool speaker from America. And he was really good and really awesome, and my friend had listened to a lot of his tapes and a lot of his sermons and was quite stoked because he'd been really um, moved and changed by this man's message. So when he was coming, my friend said, Hey, can I, can I drive him around? I would love, like, I'll take time out and I'll be a chauffeur. I'll move his bags. I'll take him from appointment to appointment because my friend thought, oh, if I could just get some time with him in the car just chatting about life, that would be amazing, and I'll just serve him however I can. And so the church said, yeah, that's fine. And so the guy came over from the States, and then my friend picked him up in the car and began to drive him around. He started to engage him in conversation saying, hey, how you doing? Uh, look, I'd love to chat with you about a few of these different things. And it just became really awkward because the guy who'd flown over just was like, yeah, 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 cool. And then would look on his phone. You know, and they'd get to the place and, you know, my friend thought, oh, he's probably just tired, eh? So they went to the first meeting and he got out and he's driving into the next place. My friend's like, oh, hey, how did that go? Hey, could I talk to you about this book that you've written? It was amazing. Can I talk to you about some of the ideas? And the guy's like, oh, no, man, um, no, no, I got some things to do. And it kind of went on that way a few times. And my friend was like, oh, this is, this is kind of awkward, Until one day, he dropped him off at another conference venue where a lot of the local church leaders and the people who'd flown him over were. And a friend gets ready, and he drops him off at the door, and he kind of follows him in. And he sees this guy as he goes in and meets with all these other Christian leaders. It was like a different person. The speaker, when he saw all the other important people and the people he was there to meet, was the most charming, amazing, charismatic guy. He smiled, he knew everyone's name, he took time to talk to all the right people, he laughed, he told jokes, he listened, you know, and it was, it was this odd thing where my friend was like, ah, oh, something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. When you bind to this idea that for us, the good life means success, it means notoriety, if our goal is to be like that, then it means that the people who aren't like that, we might not treat as well because we're relentlessly trying to get to this goal and try to get there. You know, and it's not just that guy. I've met other people, and I've, I've been in that place. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, sometimes I lead worship, and I lead some of the singing at different places, and I've had to work through times where, um, you know, I'd get asked to lead, and I'd get asked to sing at conferences or at churches, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. I'm getting opportunities. I'm so excited about this. You know, but then there'd be other days where they'd say, hey, can you go to the old folks' home and do a few hymns for them? And I'd be like, nah, I'm good. You know, and I think it's fine, and I, I walk away being like, oh, I'm probably all right, but it's the same system. You know, we can couch it in spiritual language, but so often in Christianity we have this This goal that still success means to be the big guy up front. It means to be doing the awesome things. It means to be planting a church where thousands and thousands of people will come. It means to be the guitarist where there's thousands of people that will come and listen to you play. It means being the great speaker that can draw people in. It means being the charismatic person that everybody loves to talk to. And we all kind of feel that way sometimes, eh? It's so easy to let that bleed into our thought processes. It allows it bleeds into what we think the good life actually is. And it gets even more subtle too, you know? I've And you hear it in phrases like, oh, you know, God's going to use you to change the world. Like, God's going to use you to change the world, and that's awesome. And the heart of that is good. But why is our goal for me to be the person that changes the world? You notice, even there, there's subtle ways that the world bleeds in. This idea that success means big, means notoriety, means fame, leads in. And now this isn't meant to be heavy because the most difficult thing is that this striving and when this kind of worldview seeps in, it's exhausting for you and for me. It's exhausting to constantly be trying to form yourself to look like the right person. It's exhausting to walk in on church on Sunday and try to wear the right clothes and think, oh, this is what I need to look like. It's exhausting when you get up to speak or if you're doing something in Christian service to think, oh, I have to be the best person at this. Because it's this working towards something which we're never going to attain. Instead, what James is saying and at the core of his message is, guys, let Christ and his kingdom be our goal instead. What he says to this early church is, guys, don't you understand, as soon as you bought into this patron-client relationship, as soon as you trusted this wealthy businessman to be the man who's going to take you on the up and up, who's going to bring your church into notoriety, that's going to give you the finances to do everything you want to do as a church, as soon as you bought into that and gave him the place of honor, don't you understand Jesus lost that place? As the church, our core thought and our core element of faith is Jesus Christ risen and saving you and me and when they lost Jesus at the center Jesus being the one whom was going to take care of them who's going to lead them they lost what it meant to be the church I've mentioned before this church wasn't just to be a gathering where we kind of hang out it was meant to be this new humanity that looked so different from everywhere everywhere else Whereas we were no longer bound by class systems of, you're the good one, you're the bad one, you're the rich one, you're the successful one, you're not. Instead, it was this new humanity where the rich would sit next to the poor and share the same meal. It was this humanity where Jew and Gentile, different races who were opposed, would sit together and be called one family, where they could look at each other and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. This new humanity made in Christ. And when they lost Jesus at the center and Jesus as their goal, they lost what it meant to be the church, and they lost how they interacted with one another. And it's the same for you and me. As soon as these worldly images and, and that idea of success means fame and notoriety, as soon as that seeps in, we begin to lose the idea that Christ is actually our goal. And his gospel which leads us and breathes new life into us is the thing that we aim for. And if we hold on to that vision of the world and if we love the lotto adds so much, we're going to lose what it means to be the church and we're going to lose what it means to be God's people and we're going to be exhausted trying to do it because the truth is you're never going to attain that. That honor system that Rome loved so deeply that these, these 2% tried so hard and invested all their wealth into getting that honor to move up, the truth was there was really no movement in the social classes. It was an exercise in futility. They might get their name on a plaque, but at the end of the day, they just spent a whole lot of money for nothing. And the 8% stayed the 8%, and the 90% stayed the 90%. And as long as we push for that, we're going to be constantly exhausted trying to be something other than who God has created us to be. And so instead... What I hope this would be and what James calls us to do is let Jesus reshape our dreams and let Jesus reshape our goals. If I can ask the music team to come up. If we do that, I just think we'll find so much freedom in it. You know, and when we talk to each other and say, hey, God's got a plan for your life, we don't all need to strive to be that one main person at the front that everybody's going to love listening to. You know, we can change our language so it's no longer, hey, I can't wait for, you know, you're going to be the person who's going to change the world as much as, hey, God's going to call you to go and serve the poor. Isn't that amazing? God's going to call you to go sit next to someone who doesn't have a friend, and he's just going to ask you to be present with them. Isn't that amazing? God's going to call you to just go hang out with people whom life has been really difficult for, and God is going to work through you to change their lives. Isn't that amazing? Our hashtag squad goals shouldn't be like the lotto, lotto ad who's trying to ride the slide down into a pool of his own making, as much as it should be like wonderful people like Mother Teresa, who gave her life just serving the least of these. And the greatest thing about that is, as we let go of that relentless quest for something so much greater, if we let that go, we find freedom in serving the least. And as we serve the least, we find Jesus. And in Jesus, there is so much freedom for you and for me. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to spend time here and with each other and around the gospel. Because as we soak in the gospel, it allows us to kind of cleanse ourselves from these constant messages this constant bombardment of you need to be like this you need to look like this you need to get the money to act like this so that you can be free so that you can be wealthy so that you can be successful as we sit around the gospel and we let jesus's words wash over us we can begin to let go of that constant striving to be that person and then that can change our our actions now we don't need to ignore the least but we can just be present with jesus as who he is And so I'm going to close tonight by reading some of Jesus' words. I quoted them a few weeks ago and I want to read them again so that they can wash over us to redefine what those squad goals should look like, to redefine what the good life looks like. And in redefining it, we find so much freedom. Jesus, when teaching, said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's constantly bathe in these words, bathe in this message of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Because as we do and we allow it to wash over us, we will find so much freedom from having to strive to look like this, to be like this, to act like this. And we can rest in being the meek, the humble, the lost. Because then Jesus can be everything and we can just be us saved by his grace. I thank you for who you are that your yoke is easy and that your burden is light Lord it's so often it's, it's so hard to distinguish from this constant message we're getting from every avenue of what success looks like of what the good life looks like of wealth notoriety fame of being constantly in control, of being loved and admired by everyone. Lord, we hear this so often, and it seeps in so easily into what we think we need to do, of how we need to be, and then that affects how we interact with the people around us. Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you wash away this message that is at odds with your kingdom? And instead, would you fill us with your words? with your truth and that in your truth, we might find freedom.